1: Tortoise.
2: Hello, and welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm John Curtis, Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University.
1: And I'm Rachel Wolfe. I run Public First, a policy consultancy in Westminster. Together, we try to make sense of what's going on by looking at trends and the numbers that explain them.
2: This week, we want to think about your money, or rather, the money the government takes off you and how it spends it, because of course, we had the autumn statement last week. And joining us to help us cover this, we again have a special guest for you. It's Torsten Bell. Torsten is the chief executive of the Resolution Foundation, and maybe Torsten, you might just want to tell our listeners, what is the Resolution Foundation?
3: Well, it's not as exciting as a brand new podcast from uh, Tortoise, but we are a small economic research charity focused on economic policy through the lens of what it means for the living standards of households on low and middle incomes. And if I remember correctly,
2: you've got two bits of history hanging around your neck. One is you once worked for the Labour Party and the other is you've also been a Treasury official, which does strike me that you must have the weight of history sitting upon you very heavily, Torsten.
3: Right, when people do those introductions, John, I always think it's been a, you know, it's been a very successful 15 years. We've managed a banking crisis. <laughs> We've managed several election uh, defeats. I won't start. There's some things have gone well, but um, let's not go into those.
1: You can comfort yourself with how much better things would have been if you'd won.
3: That is what I do when I can't sleep at night, Rachel.
2: So what we're going to, what we're going to do this week, we're going to try to take this thing in, in three bites. We're going to start in the middle, believe it or not, and just take a little bit more closely at the autumn statement, and particularly the tax cuts in the autumn statement, and ask ourselves, well, how much of a giveaway was it? We're then going to go and look back more more broadly as to what's happened to taxation and spending and real incomes in this parliament. And then we will look forwards to the legacy that's going to face the next government of whatever political stripe. So to start us off, uh, Torsten, in your uh, Research Foundation analysis, you said, well, yep, this is a tax cut overall for individuals, but basically it is only those who earn more than 26k, which is median earnings, who will actually be better off once the two-piece implemented, Can you explain that to us, please?
3: Absolutely. So I think we did see some pretty large tax cuts from the Chancellor in the autumn statement. Half of those are for ordinary households, for uh, people's earnings via a national insurance cut for the self-employed and for employees. It is a pretty chunky tax cut, about £10 billion but it comes in the context of some very large, much larger tax rises. That's the freezing of the income tax and the national insurance thresholds that everyone's been talking about ad nauseum for the last few years. And if we just think about the election year, so look at what happens from April onwards, then what we see is that for the top half of earners, the 2p off national insurance is bigger than their losses from another round of freezing all of those tax thresholds. By about... Well, if you take the tax cuts overall, then twenty nine million households will benefit, and they will be benefiting by an average of about three hundred and thirty pounds. But then, if we knock off the cost of those tax rises, we're talking about about a hundred pounds in terms of the average benefit.
2: Right. Okay. So um, half the country is about a hundred quid, hundred quid better off, as it were. Yeah. So th- this, I again, mean, g- g- just explain to this point about thresholds, Torsten. So why wh- why are we saying that we should? Uh, as it were, both take into account the fact that something didn't happen as well as the fact that something did happen in the autumn statement?
3: Well, as with everything in Britain in the 2020s, everything comes down to inflation. um, So our usual policy is to uprate basically all the, not quite, but basically all of the thresholds in our tax system in line with inflation each year. Obviously, inflation is particularly high right now, but instead of that usual uprating, for example, uprating the threshold at which you start to pay national insurance or you start to pay income tax, we've left them frozen in cash terms. And as our earnings rise in line with that inflation, but our tax threshold doesn't, then we see more people entering the tax system and we see the average tax rate paid by those already in the tax system on average rising. So that is what is going on this year, but also going on over the last few years and going on over the next few years as around £45 billion worth of tax rises are introduced via a six-year freeze on basically every threshold in the personal tax system.
2: OK, so, so, so given what we said so far, how is it that the government is claiming that this is the biggest tax cut um, in uh, fiscal history?
3: Well, I think the government is right to say that there are large tax cuts announced. We're looking at about £20 billion worth. That is the largest set of tax cuts announced since 1988, unless we count the ones announced, but that never happened from Liz Truss last year, prior to her defenestration. So I think they are pretty chunky tax cuts. The reason why we're still seeing tax rises is mainly because much bigger tax rises have already been announced. So the net effect is a tax rise. So if we just look at the personal taxes for a second, we've cut them by £10 billion right now, but we've got a £45 billion increase going on. So overall, people will be on average £1,200 worse off, taking the long view of all those tax rises and tax cuts together. Or if we look at the tax burden for the economy as a whole, so not looking at individuals, but at the whole of the economy. Because inflation in general is pushing up taxes, what we are seeing is that the tax burden is rising quite significantly over recent years, but also in the next few years.
1: I suppose what interests me, Torsten, is autumn statements, if you assume they're partly political. What? I know. I know you've never thought about them in those terms, particularly when you're at the Treasury. Um could achieve quite a lot or try to achieve quite a lot of different things, particularly the year before an election. So there's what John's been asking about, which is effectively, are people paying more or less tax? And it depends what time frame you count it as. There's the question of whether they feel their public services are operating, because some of the reasons we take tax is to spend it on public services. There's whether the overall economy and therefore potentially wages are rising. And there's one that you raised earlier, which is broadly, do I just think even though they've been dealt a bad hand of cards, these are broadly competent guys who will cut taxes for me when they can. So if you take that kind of round, if you accept that round, what, which of those do you think, if any, this autumn statement starts to achieve and if you were thinking about the budget next year is the kind of second half of this in an election year how might those credibly combine and I'm going to add an addendum to that which is one of the things that I think confuses most people certainly me is the way that random money seems to be found at the back of sofa or not a couple of weeks before the budget that radically changed these questions but given what we know now like how might those interact on those criteria?
3: Um, Those are big questions and hard. So just briefly on the last bit, I think that probably does surprise a lot of people that you see these big swings in public finance forecasts, which then do change radically what a government feels able to do. um, You definitely saw that this fiscal event. We actually saw a bit of that last March where the Chancellor was able to announce, despite claiming that we want to see a smaller state and actually quite a big extension of the state into childcare from nine months upwards in England. So, you know, so these do, these things do matter a great deal. If you're Liz Truss, you would say that the mean forecast turning against you last autumn made your slightly bonkers plans even more bonkers um, than they would otherwise have been. So these things do matter. I'd say right now they're particularly difficult because once we've got these kind of very high and volatile levels of inflation, those just have huge consequences for how we think about future tax revenues because some bits of the tax system are frozen, some are not. Some bits of public spending are frozen, some are not. Debt interest payments suddenly become more volatile. So the volatility is a feature of the real world, not just of are we incompetent at forecasting. But you know, I think it is a reasonable question to say, should we be completely overreacting to each individual forecast? But we The do, reason so- we're doing that though, well, we don't need to. Some countries don't. The reason we do is a combination of very centralized fiscal state i.e so we're able to overreact to them two we pay as a result of that we pay way too much attention to the individual forecasts like in you know the same forecasts exist in the United States everyone just ignores them because congress won't do anything on the back of those forecasts um so, so it isn't an optimal uh situation we uh live in but we are where we are but
2: but but tosten haven't, haven't we haven't we learned that if we ignore forecasts then uh, the
3: markets might decide that they don't believe us I didn't say ignore them, John. I just said, let's not... Let's say, why do we overreact to them? It's because we pay lots of attention to them. Obviously, people like me are in favour of that because otherwise we wouldn't have a living. Um, But it's also because we are running our fiscal policy very close to the wind. So we're saying, well, I promise you I'm going to get debt falling in five years' time, but I'm going to leave absolutely no wriggle room. So then if anything happens to the forecast, if it gets worse, I've suddenly got to cut spending and raise taxes. Or if things get better, I suddenly think to myself, oh, well, I can get back to that low headroom by spending all the money
2: yeah so 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 just to pick this up and to carry to pursue what Rachel was pursuing so what are the implications of all of this for the decisions that the chancellor may or may not be able to make next spring which is that's where part two of his potential election strategy
3: yeah absolutely so I do think you know from a technocratic perspective what he's done last week is fiscally risky on the basis that he's basically chosen to introduce large tax cuts that he doesn't really know whether he can afford in the long run. And
1: is still pretending that some tax rises will happen that probably won't, like fuel duty, right?
3: And also that, Rachel, yeah, absolutely. They add lots of other things we could list as potential pressures on spending or tax cuts. So yes, definitely fiscally risky from a technocrat's perspective. Debt's not really falling under any of these forecasts, whatever. Whatever either party says about their plans to get debt falling, neither of them is remotely on track to be able to do that. Then it's politically risky for exactly the reasons that Rachel has pointed out, which is we get these big swings in the forecast. We should expect those to be larger than normal at the moment. We're going to get another one of those in March if you roll. The dice, and they come up on the positive side, improve public finances in March. Well, happy days. We can have an income tax cut, or inheritance tax if they decide that that is electorally useful. If they go the other way, then it will look pretty silly having left so little headroom.
2: So, what does he do? What does he do in those circumstances? Does he have to raise taxes, or does he try to cut spending?
3: Uh, Well, my best guess is if that world actually materialised, then we will basically fiddle the public spending projections, the assumptions to make it look like you're going to fit your fiscal rules. He's not going to be actually raising tax in the last year of elections. But isn't one
2: of the criticisms that has been made by this budget is that uh, while it um, takes the benefits of inflation so far as being able to reduce taxes is concerned, seemingly, it hasn't taken into account the impact of inflation on public spending projections, which already looked rather improbably tight.
3: Yeah, there's basically two ways to think about the choices he's made in this in this autumn statement. One is exactly as you've said, that he's chosen to say, right, I've got extra tax revenues coming in because of higher inflation. I'm going to give that back to consumers in lower taxes right now. Uh, but I'm, and I'm going to pretend to myself that that same high inflation isn't also pushing up public service spending, which of course in the end it will, because have you met public service workers? um, And that that isn't the optimal choice to have made. Another way of thinking about it to be a bit kinder to the Chancellor is to say, extra tax revenues coming in because the economy is more tax rich because of the high inflation. I'm giving that back to workers, so I'm leaving the tax take basically unchanged. And then debt interest bill has gone up, and I am basically squeezing public services to pay for that debt interest bill, leaving the size of the state also unchanged.
2: Therefore, in a sense, what we're saying is that uh, the Conservatives are assuming uh, in the wake of what has been a, as we'll come, come back to, a substantial expansion of the role of the state during this parliament. They're assuming that what the public now want between now and the election Is tax cuts more than they want an improvement to public services?
3: Well, I think that is broadly right. My only slight caveat would be, without wanting to get too fluffy about it, whether they more just want to make sure that relative to the Labour Party, they're the people that look like they won't be as gung-ho about putting up your taxes, given that the British public basically get the taxes are going up, not down.
2: Yeah, but of course, the problem, I mean, what we know from uh, you know data on opinion polling is that whereas the rise in ex- public spending that occurred under New Labour, which is quite substantial and did, for example, result in a substantial reduction in waiting lists, there was indeed a reaction against that. The public swung away from saying, well, we we need more public spending to saying, well, hang on no, just keep things as they are. If anything, try to reduce taxes. And we had that reaction, particularly during the course of the financial crisis. Yet this, at the moment at least, there isn't any sign in the British Social Attitude's really long time series that that reaction has occurred this time, that if, that people are saying that uh, tax cuts are more important than public spending. Opinions uh, polling also points us in that direction. And I guess the other big bet the government therefore is taking is that actually, despite what they tell pollsters, tax cuts do matter more to voters than does the size of the waiting list for the NHS.
3: So I broadly agree with that. I would just say there's a reason why public opinion hasn't switched in the way it did in the 2000s. And that's basically because one, public services haven't improved and because the increase in the size of the state isn't really about public services this time. It's about paying a debt interest bill that has gone up. And so it's not surprising that isn't leading to people changing their view about how much we need to spend on public services uh, secondly then I think it's a I broadly agree with your reading of what the public opinion data is telling us I probably would place slightly less weight on the most recent British social attitude survey just because it was conducted I think in September of 2022 yeah, but if you look at the opinion I agree if you look more, at the opinion yes. data it has it has more changed. recent stuff I agree does also point in that direction
2: anyway so, so anyway what, what what is worthwhile noting and we can kind of read this one of two ways I mean there have been numerous numerous polling companies who have asked people about what they think about the autumn statement, the individual measures, they're virtually all of them popular, right? So sure, nobody says, no, I don't think we shouldn't be having a tax cut. But you then ask people, well, do you think this was a good or bad package? Do you think it's good or bad for the economy? Um, public opinion in virtually every reading splits pretty much. Well, a lot of people say it's not going to make any difference either way or they don't know. But those who do express a view, it basically divides 50-50. Although, in fairness to the government, amongst those who voted Conservative, rather more people think it was a good statement than a bad one. But certainly it's worth being in mind in terms of the overall reaction. People haven't immediately gone, oh, that's got lots of big tax cuts, uh, therefore it's a good thing.
1: We always spill... Inevitably, vast volumes of ink and analysis on each autumn statement and budget, and we now have two a year. And we hype up the polling around them. But it seems to me, at least, relatively rare for a single economic statement and series of policies to make a radical difference to either reality on the ground or how people feel. And what I suppose, strikes me as interesting. I'd be interested to know if you agree with this, Torsten. If you look at the Chancellor's first budget earlier this year, this one and what you said about the next budget, um, he seems to be spreading across quite a lot of different stuff. So he's doing quite a lot of business investment taxation. We haven't talked about full expensing, but he, like there's a lot of money broadly at the moment that's going into into that and will continue to do so. He's giving chunks to parents for childcare. He's giving some chunks on national insurance. Um, He's giving bits on benefits. But there's no kind of massive shift that he's trying to generate that people are really going to notice. Is is that fair and would that ever happen?
3: Um, So I basically agree with you um, that we shouldn't be expecting individual fiscal events to transform the political weather or, de- or certainly the economic weather in the in the long run it's the economic substance that matters both for public opinion and for and for the performance of our economy without coming across as a marxist it's the structure that matters on the i think on the specifics your wider point though about what this chancellor has been doing i think does get to a kind of interesting question which is on the individual micro measures in lots of ways what this chancellor does is announce things that the technocrats quite like
1: yeah I was really struck by how much Treasury civil servants liked this budget. I feel like that's a really bad <laughs> yeah, sign. I
3: agree. Well, that, that's from a very particular perspective, Rachel. But leaving that aside, I do think, like, how do we, I think the way to think about it is you've got a Jeremy Hunt who in lots of ways thinks about himself as a sensible chancellor at the end of a government doing sensible things. And that's why you want to boost business investment, even though it costs you £10 billion up front, despite costing you far less in the long run, you have to co- pay for that in the early years, you would not normally be expecting that kind of thing to happen in a pre-election fiscal event. Similarly, the choice of national insurance is definitely the right thing to be doing. I applaud him all the way.
2: In a moment, we will look to the long term record of uh, taxation in this parliament. We'll be back in a minute.
3: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Maybe we should just not, we've already referred to a little bit, but let's let's go look at the parliament as a whole. We focus very uh, narrowly on the, the next 12 months. So, Here's a, another statistic, at Torsten. Um, again, I think it comes from your report. So overall in this parliament, we are looking at a drop in real disposable free income. So in other words, this is the amount of things that people can buy with the incomes that the average person is getting. It's gone down by just over 3% during this parliament, which, if I've understood things correctly, is the worst record of any post-war parliament, question mark.
3: Yeah, you know, absolutely, John. I mean, it's worth—it's reflect- just very, very unusual to go into a general election, particularly for a long parliament, with actually lower incomes for the for the voters than they had at the last election. And, that we- and we- I think it's almost certain that is where we're going to be. If we have an election at the back end of next year, then we will almost certainly have lower incomes then than we had going into the twenty nineteen election. Now. Maybe that's not surprising and because that's
1: we've had a huge a, a COVID and Ukraine effect.
3: It's co, it's a it's definitely a pandemic, and then it's particularly the cost of living crisis. And across Europe, we're seeing incomes taking a kicking. I think it's worth highlighting the difference in Britain is that it's coming on the back of a simply disastrous fifteen years for productivity growth and wages. So when wages haven't grown since about two thousand and Remember, on these forecasts from the Office for Budget Responsibility, it takes us till 2029 to get back to the wage levels we had in 2028. So that's the backdrop to something really bad happening over the course of the last few years. And that's why it's particularly difficult for a government that wants to say, well, it's just bad luck over the course of this parliament, because people know that it's been a pretty terrible 15 years.
1: So big picture, people are going to feel worse off next year because they are worse off. There is nothing this budget has done or plausibly was going to do to radically change that and we have a chancellor or a government for for good or ill that is making sensible long-term decisions but not trying to ramp up the sense of kind of uh, people being better off into an election year so it is very very unlikely that anything they've done is going to make people feel good when they go to the polls?
3: Uh, I think, well, I think are people going to be feeling really perky next year unless something else that's outside of the control of the Chancellor changes? Then no. I think that is broadly right. We're all going to feel a bit worse off. Lots of what's happened actually is some of the pain that we're expecting to see to household incomes in the last year has actually been deferred into the election year. So if anything, the bad luck has pushed uh, some of the pain, particularly of mortgage rises, into... Next year. So I think that is broadly right. I think it's a little bit like the Chancellor is doing basically what Ken Clark did at the end of the 90s, which is having done a load of tax rises in recent years, making sure that he can at least talk about some tax cuts in the election year. And talking is, you know, a large part of politics. But alas, Torsten, if you look at
2: what happened in the wake of the 1995 and 1996 budgets, is that nothing happened. Indeed, it's quite interesting at the moment to to compare the rhetoric. Uh, Before the 1997 election, Labour talked about 23 tax rises, referring to the rises that had indeed occurred earlier in that parliament. And Labour now are, I think, almost exactly aping the rhetoric. They're now talking about 22 tax rises. Absolutely. Again, re- again, referring to recent things. So the problem is... Uh, how do you persuade people to forget the fact that although you said you were a tax cutting party, you've actually increased them? And of course, the difficulty now is that you know, we're talking about the drop in living standards in this parliament. At least before the 1997 parliament, there was, during the parliament, there was something like an 11 percent increase in living standards off what, what that stage was a rather healthy economy. Yet even then, the Conservatives crashed to defeat.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the, you know, the late 90s. And the early 2000s are the last kind of actually boomy times we've seen in British living standards in the British economy. There was a brief flurry around 2015, but really it's about the late 90s, which is what Ken Clark rightly always boasts about whenever he's talking about what he handed over to Gordon uh, Brown in that phase. So I think you're right in that case. I mean, it wasn't just the previous tax rises obviously did for the Conservatives in 1997, but it definitely didn't help. And it definitely didn't it
2: definitely did well, called There was something called Black Wednesday, for I, which I the, just, this right. just fiscal <laughs> event <laughs> exactly. potentially the... Um, exactly. And yeah. 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 I, I certainly what one can also say, if you look at Ipsos Mori's data on people's perceptions of the economy... Uh, not only is this, you know, the first to comment where Livingstone is a decline. This has also been the worst Parliament since Ipsos Mori have been asking people about how optimistic or pessimistic they are about the future. We have been pessimistic throughout virtually the whole of this Parliament, except for a brief uh, period during 2021 after the, uh, we began to come out of lockdown. But Torsten, we 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 ought we ought to talk about the future. Um, And the legacy that the next administration, whether conservative or labor, is going to be faced with. And of course, you know, one thing we can say is that according to OBR, the tax rate is going to go up to 38%, which will be a record figure. Spending is going to go down a bit, but we're going to end up paying more taxes for still rather less than in the way of services, because you've already said. A lot of it is taken by debt interest. So let's imagine for the purposes of argument, let's imagine that Labour do win the election. What does Labour do in a budget in 2025 to get us out of this low productivity, um, uh, poor public services, but lack of fiscal headroom?
3: Well, the first thing that a Chancellor, whether they are Labour or Conservative after the next election, does is to pray that interest rates are on the way down, not on the way up, because that will make a material. I think one thing I would say is I hear a lot of people very confidently saying, oh, taxes are definitely staying at this high level, or the public services are definitely getting stuffed in the next parliament. I think they're overdoing, there's too much confidence in what the future looks like. I have no idea what interest rates look like in three years' time. Could they look like 3% rather than the 5% markets are currently pricing in? Yes. Would a Chancellor be betting on that definitely happening. No, but I think they would reasonably be praying it does indeed take place. So that's the like, you know, wishful thinking part of the picture, John. That's what politicians do. I know, it is, but I mean it, but you know, the something might turn up bit of politics is a reasonably large bit of politics. So let's not um let's not start sniffing at it. I mean the same thing applies to a lesser degree in a more abstract sense in a, you know, hope the global economy and therefore the British economy is just having a bit of a, you know, having had so many bad events in the last five years you just get a phase where things are a bit better. So that also goes in the praying bucket. Then let's forget the religious part and decide what what do you do if things just still look basically like they look here. And I think there's basically, the, the challenge you're trying to wrestle with is that if a Labour administration has turned up, and who knows, there's still a year to go, probably, um, but if one has turned up, then the big challenge they've got is how how do they reduce the risk that within, say, six months of an election or a year of an election, they just already look like incumbents. They already look like the people that are overseeing basically taxes that have already gone up and public services that are crumbling.
1: And it's worth saying that certainly my sense of public opinion is that's sort of what people are expecting. They don't actually think at the moment that the next Labour government is going to transform their future. I
3: absolutely agree with that. But the question is, what is their view of that government once it's the actual incumbent?
1: Absolutely, yeah.
3: The real question you've got is... You're either hoping that something turns up and it gives you more wriggle room, which is a, a bit of growth or a bit of debt interest coming down or a bit of both. Not totally implausible, but, you know, you're rolling the dice. Or you decide, look, I've got to have a story about public services improving and actually growing the economy. And on growing the economy side, that particularly in a net zero context is going to require higher investment levels than are currently penciled in. And you're not plausibly, whatever your reforms are, gonna see public services start to turn around without some change in the current spending numbers. And so you'll then you are wrestling with what tax reforms that in fact bring in tax revenues are you able to put in place early on, because you can do it then in a way you won't be able to do in the third year of a parliament. And I think that you know that is lot. what we'll end up.
1: There's been some sort of coverage on this, so sort of the loophole hunt that Rachel Reeves is on. As a, um, we're all a loophole a, I know, I know. There's there are well, the implication there is there are vast numbers of pain-free, economically or politically, uh, tax rises that could be done by a Labour government. Maybe harder for a Conservative government. That would give you vast amounts of money to spend on public services and improve them. Is that accurate?
3: So pain-free, not because people don't tend to enjoy having their taxes rise are there ones that can be presented and it probably are both fair because they're addressing some particularly actually one of the interesting things is people in politics tend to think about particularly in u.s politics about fairness between taxes paid by lower earners and taxes paid by higher earners so in the u.s politics they often talk about look you're paying a higher percentage tax if you're poor than if you're rich in the uk context one of the most striking fairness questions is that different groups of rich people or richish people pay just very different tax rates? Yeah. yeah. So, like, so for example, corporate lawyers pay much lower tax than corporate bankers. Now, so are there things that can be done to address some of those fairness questions? And actually, probably in ways that would make our tax system and our economy overall more efficient? There definitely are. So they're ones that you can, can make a um and a an argument of the for the
1: scale that fixes the NHS.
3: Well, uh, well, I mean, thanks to the NHS, again, there's a lot of praying going on.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> but, worth saying it's had a fair amount of extra money.
3: <laughs> it has had quite a lot of the um and, and, and I'll leave you, you the other one that's written reports on that, Rachel, rather than me. But on, um no, I think you can raise quite substantial sums of money by making changes like those. I think there's a bit too, it's a bit, overall, of course, much higher levels of taxation do require, you know, at, at most workers to pay more tax. But remember, that's what we've just done. Over the course of these years, we're seeing huge increase in the tax burden. It's mainly going on workers via the threes in the threshold, so that's already happening.
1: But that's exactly the trap, isn't it? I mean, that's the point that they're going to inherit some. They're going to inherit an environment where there's high taxation, but public spending doesn't seem to be resulting in good public services and borrowing. But be careful, careful on that.
3: I hear that. I hear people say that a lot. It's not that higher public services, public, higher public spending isn't translating into better public services. It's, it's we're spending it, on, it. No, no, it's that we're spending it on... That isn't why the state's getting bigger. The state's getting bigger, not because we've spent loads on public services. It's because the state's getting bigger because there's a debt interest bill gone the up. The
2: problem is we're spending more, but on seemingly getting less.
3: Yeah, because we are. <laughs> like, yeah. Because that's what's going on. Now, um, so what do you do in those circumstances? Well, you're then making a choice about just quite how much higher the tax burden is In terms of if you or you're deciding that there's bits of the state you are less fussed about, you know that that there's priorities within the state. You know, as I say, would a Labour administration have gone for quite the universal, you know, upper middle class heavy extension of childcare that the Conservatives have currently implemented? Probably, probably not. But um, there's obviously a different thing to are they going to be in a position to unravel it after an election where it's already it promised to... Yeah, that's a different thing. But they wouldn't have and, done that. So there are definitely choices how, to be made.
1: How plausible is it that some of these very sensible, technocratic, but not electorally rewarding things that have been done in the last year that we are talking about earlier do start to make a difference in the next parliament alongside, say, some of the reforms that... Keir Starmer's talked about planning reform or the green investment. I mean, is it plausible that you start to see higher economic growth?
3: Um, So I I would rephrase it, which is, is it plausible that we could see a marked increase in the investment level in the economy so people could see things happening? I think actually, yeah, some of the stuff that the Chancellor didn't really talk about for understandable reasons, given that there are some marginal seats in Suffolk and other areas, but would make a big deal, for example, on easing the ability to get energy infrastructure built. Yeah. They're quite a big deal, what he's talked about. They're basically saying, in very quietly, we're going to remove a lot of local vetoes from putting yeah. pylons up and building energy infrastructure, but we'll give you a bang in exchange for loss of your veto. Those kind of things yeah. will make a big difference, not overnight at all, but you might, during the course of a parliament, you probably will see more energy infrastructure built. For another example, you know, if, if a Labour government comes in and says on the housing front, not oh, we've got our own really exciting plan to make it easier to build homes, but instead says, here is Michael Gove's plan
0: that he tried to implement.
3: (laughs) Uh, We're just going to do that. Uh, It's going to give targets to Tory councils to build in the shires. Um, We're going to make sure it actually happens. We're going to, yeah. well, I, you phrase all the politics. But anyway, could that lead to some significant increase in house building that's visible and that when Tories complain about it, you say it was just Michael Gove's plan? Yeah, absolutely. So there are areas where you could see increases in investment. All I would say is the feedback from in- increased investment to increased consumption, high GDP, higher consumption, is a long one. So I don't think, going back to what you were saying earlier, unless we get very lucky on other things, productivity, wages, debt interest, people are still not going to feel like it's happy days in terms of their consumption. But I think they could start to feel like Britain's turning a corner from being basically a disgracefully low investment nation to being one that's trying to invest in its future again. And that's if, if I was Kirstana, be... that is what I would be setting myself up for.
1: This might be a stupid question, Torsten, but I, I had always understood that the reason we wanted higher investment was because we thought it would drive higher productivity, that they ought to be rather connected. Is that not right? They are,
3: but the game is long, Rachel. How so long? H- higher, well, that's a good, so let's think about it this way. If you want to be a higher investment country, then in the long run, that will mean higher living standards. But in the short term, you're not changing the level of GDP, you're changing the makeup of GDP. So, so you're consumption, reducing yeah. consumption and you're yeah. increasing investment. That is what we need to do as terms of, if you take an economic strategy view of the country, we've got to do that, particularly because of the net zero transition, but also because at some point, we might want to not be a country living off its past and preparing for the future. So we do need to do that. But no, it's not a short term win for raising living standards.
1: But how long is long?
3: Uh, so we have actually modelled that you will start if you if you significantly increase the investment rates, even taking into account paying for that with lower consumption in the short term, maybe ten years, assuming you've invested wisely,
1: just in time for the neck for the for the, for the,
3: for the following think, but, government. But to come I, in. yes, that is true. But again, one things turn up that make it make other things c- could make things better in the short term, and then secondly. In the end, you know, you've got to decide what's the political and economic strategy that is available to you, given the world as you find it, not as you wish it should be, wish it to be. And actually, I think you know there is a bit of overlap between Jeremy Hunt and Kirsten, which is telling people you've got a long-term plan and you're an adult about it. Has some? It's definitely not foolproof. It definitely isn't like a something you do in the election year to make everything feel better. But actually, it might be for a time that that is the contrast they're aiming to. They're aiming to draw compared to, for example, a government that's felt pretty chaotic for the British public.
2: So I think, but I think, Torsten, what you're telling us is that if we suddenly discover that Rachel Reeves is a regular attender at some kind of religious service, we will know that she indeed is praying. Uh, for things to turn up in the way that you're suggesting you do?
3: Well, John, I think I think we should all get down to the churches because this is about Britain. So we should all be praying that things turn well, out You a heard bit it here, and heard it here folks.
1: Multicultural Britain, Torsten. We can choose our place of worship, but the Prince of yeah, the not, Yes, yes.
3: <laughs> uh, I don't mind where you pray. Did you Have you not seen the uh, the new praying multi-faith booth that's been opened at Bristol Airport? That looks it fine to me. It is a
1: model. For, the, for people who haven't heard it, it's worth looking at this. There is a what looks like a bus stop outside the airport. I mean, it doesn't look like a bus stop. It is a bus stop. <laughs> with much funfair, fanfare as a new multi fare playing room. And it is a symbol of our attitude to building an investment, I think, in this country. You mean it's it a is. reminder
2: how, it how long it takes for the bus to turn up in at in, in many a bus stop. But anyway, I suppose too. what we should note before we conclude is that insofar as Conservative MPs We're hoping, despite Rachel's uh, words of caution, that this indeed would, uh, autumn statement, would result in an immediate uh, improvement in the Conservatives' fortunes. We have now had seven opinion polls conducted by companies that also polled before the Autumn Statement. On average, they show a one-point increase in Conservative support, but they also show a one-point increase in Labour support. So therefore, the Conservatives remain Uh, around 18 points behind in the opinion polls. So another so-called major political event to change the tide has happened and come and gone. And in the short run, at least, it's not changed our politics.
1: But I'm going to... Can we finish on an optimistic note for once? Because I feel all we ever do is doom and gloom and it's all terrible, which is that one of the things Torsten said is there were quite a lot of sensible things this year which if they're carried on and it looks plausible that some of them will be, actually might mean we're richer in a decade, which would be nice.
2: Yeah. So in other in other words, maybe indeed we should give credit where credit is due and that indeed uh, we have uh, a, a government and indeed perhaps an opposition, both of which are focused on improving Britain's position in the long run and not necessarily chasing the short term headlines. Oh, that we could be 100% confident Oh, you truth. killed
1: it. It was so glass half full. <laughs> Never mind. One come day. On, come on,
3: John. We can We can do better.
1: <laughs>
3: Happy days are ahead of us. The sun is shining today. And one thing about Britain having had a desire... We should pray. And <laughs> one thing about having us us having had a relative decline phase for the last 15 years is that Britain's got a lot of catch-up potential.
1: Uh, Torsten, you have been typically brilliant. Thank you so much. And hopefully, if we get you on again in a year it will all look a little sunnier
3: well you know hopefully we're all in favor of sunshine thank you very much for the invitation i always love listening to the podcast
2: so before we go we've got a bit of news for you about this podcast from monday the 4th of december so that's monday of next week Trendy will be moving to Tortoise News we've been promoted.
1: Listen to one story every day to make sense of the world on Tortoise's Daily Sensemaker. Find out what should be leaving the news with the news meeting on Mondays and Fridays. And on Thursdays, you'll get us talking about politics, polling and society. Search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. That's it from Trendy for this week. I'm Rachel Wolfe.
2: And I'm John Curtis. Thanks for listening.
1: Tortoise.
3: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?